I want to start with the gospel today. I want to end with the gospel. Father, I ask that you would awaken our hearts today, that you would stir our souls. I pray, Father, that you would break down walls of unbelief. I pray, God, that you would break down religious walls, Father, where we are where our worship of You, dear Lord, is tradition or where, God, it may simply be us going through the motions. I ask, dear Lord, that You would awaken our souls today and that You would do so through Your Word and the power of Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, start in. Look at verse 12. Paul is urging us to give thanks to the Father. And he uses this term, give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has qualified you to do that. If you are here this morning and you and your heart is set, your mind is set on approaching God, that you are not just here out of religious responsibility or invitation or just because this is what we do on Sundays, but if you can get your mind in the place that we are drawing near to God, and then at some point that thought comes into your mind, well, am I, am I accepted by God? But Because I know the things that I've struggled with this week. I know what has happened in my life. I know the bad attitudes that I have had. I know the sin that I have wrestled with. Maybe even this morning, am I accepted by Him? And Paul's admonition, His encouragement, His exhortation to us is trust. Be thankful to the Father because if you believe in Christ and His work, He has qualified you. Yes, you are qualified, not because of what you have done, but you are qualified to share in the inheritance that He has for all of God's people for all time. You are qualified. No one can take that from you. No one can disqualify you. No one can, no one can say you do not deserve that because God knows we didn't deserve it. No one can say you didn't earn it because God knows we didn't earn it. Christ earned it for us. And we are qualified by Him. That is the Gospel. Believe upon Jesus and His work. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Listen to this, verse 13. If you are in Christ, if you believe upon Jesus for the salvation of your sins, I'm not asking, I'm not saying that you believe upon Jesus as a character, as a historical figure, or that you believe facts about the resurrection, but if you believe upon Him, if your hope is in Him, what we talked about last week, if you trust in Him, if you say, I know there is an eternity, and I know the moment that I take my last breath, I will be with God. And the reason I will be with Him is because I trust in Christ. If that is of you today, if that is said of you, here is what He has done for you. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and He has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. He has delivered and transferred he has rescued and moved us. In this world, there is a dominion of darkness where there is chaos and lies and evil. And there is a kingdom of light where there is godliness and love and peace. And every soul on earth exists in one of those two domains. And if you are in Christ, you have been rescued from the dominion of chaos and lies and evil and death. And you have been moved into 
the kingdom of His beloved Son. Because, verse 14, in Christ we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. The word redemption means you have been rescued from the power of another and it happened at a price. You were, your freedom was purchased at a price. That price was the life of Jesus on a cross. And if you believe in Him, you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I want to start with that this morning. And then we're going to end with that, Lord willing, in a moment. If you belong to Agape, if you have been here for any length of time, then you know one of the things that we talk about often is that our goal, one of our goals as a church, is to be a house of prayer. And that is a term that's in the Bible. Jesus said, my house will be called that. God's house, His household, the family of faith, the brothers and the sisters of Christ that belong to the Father. That household will be called a house of prayer. A household of prayer. And that is not just something that as leaders we are saying because it's a phrase that sounds good. We legitimately desire for this household to be a household of prayer. To be a house of prayer. And for that to happen, one of the things that I believe is that the culture of this church has to be developed. It's not a one-time lesson. It's not a one-time sermon. It's not a one-time teaching that happens. There must be a culture in this church that we are yearning and desiring to be a household of prayer. Now, culture is something that gets thrown around a lot. That word culture. What does that mean? If you look it up in the dictionary, there are three attributes to a culture. One is, if you can find a group of people or a, an organization, a company, a group of people, an organization, and you say, okay, what's the culture? There's three attributes to a culture. Number one, it's their attitude. Number two, it's their values. And number three, it's their practice. That makes up culture. What is the attitude of this group of people? What is the values of this group of people? And what is the practice of this group of people? So I want to take that definition of culture and I want to try to apply it to what it means for us to be a household of prayer. And to have a culture here that is a culture that is a household of prayer. So if you have a worship guide, and they were on the back table. The back table is not in the normal place. We've got it moved over to make room for our lunch tables today. But on the back table, there's some worship guides. And there's some notes there if you want to go through the notes. If you like to fill in the blanks. This life truth that we're going to start with today. In a house of prayer... The culture of the church is one that shares an attitude of absolute reliance on God. It is a culture that highly values opportunities to express their thanks to Christ for who He is and what He does. And all of this is expressed regularly and intentionally by the practice 
of worship and intercession. So what I am submitting to you today that if our church, Agape, is going to have a culture, not a one-time teaching, not a sermon series, but a culture that if someone walks into this church and they spend any significant amount of time here, they will figure out pretty quickly, oh, this place has this culture. And if we are going to be a place that has a culture of a house of prayer, then we see these things, an attitude, a value, and a practice. An attitude of absolute reliance on God. That we believe we rely on Christ for everything. Everything. We rely on Jesus about everything. We rely on Jesus for our spiritual needs. We rely on Him for our practical needs. We rely on Him for everything. We rely on Him for big provision and little provision. Yes, we rely on Him by praying for health and healing. And yes, we rely on Him when we're working on our car and we've been spending an hour trying to get a bolt off of the engine and we can't. And we stop and we pray and we ask God to intervene and help and provide wisdom. I mean literally everything. We rely on Him for. That that is the attitude of this church. And that we highly value the opportunity to express thanks to God through praise and through worship. Because when we're praying and relying on Him, we're seeing God do incredible things. And so the attitude of our heart is, God, thank You. Thank You for hearing us. Thank You for listening to us. God, thank You for the answered prayers. God, thank You that for the prayers that You have not yet answered, we know You are still hearing us. And we are eager for that. We have a culture, if we're a house of prayer, we don't sleepily walk in on Sunday mornings dragging ourselves in just kind of like, oh, I'm back at church again. No, we are eager to be together, to sing and shout and pray and thank God in our midst. Thank Jesus for who He is and what He does. And so we express this. If this is our culture, if this is what we, if this is our attitude and if this is what we value, then people will see that. And the expression of it is worship and intercession. Worship and prayer. If we were to say we're a house of prayer and there was not regular and intentional worship and intercession, people could rightly look at that and say, I, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not seeing that. If this is our culture, then we will eagerly run for the opportunities to pray together, worship together, be together. I'm laying that before you. I'm submitting that to you because we make up the culture. It's not just for the pastors to figure out. It's not for us to put on the website and say, yeah, we're a house of prayer and that's it. This, the culture comes from us. The culture is the people. The culture is what we do. So we have to look introspectively at ourselves. In your worship notes, I put a couple of questions down for you. Diagnostic questions. And I, I would say, apply these to yourself. Look at your own life. Do we intercede for one another as a regular practice? By the way, intercession, intercede, if you, it's a biblical word. It means to plead on behalf of another. 
So here's the question. You look at your life. If you're a member of Agape, if you attend here regularly, do you regularly and intentionally plead on behalf of one another? And if you don't do that, ask yourself, why not? And you may find you have practical reasons. I don't take the time. I don't put it in my schedule. I stay up too late to get up early. I get up too early to stay up late. I don't know what the, I don't know what the situation is, but it's something that you just say, yes, yeah, practical. But there's also spiritual. There's also a spiritual root behind every practical action. Do I not value it enough? Do I not love people enough? Do I not really think this is going to make a difference in their lives? Do I not really think this is important? Ask yourselves that question. And then ask yourself this question. When I plead on behalf of my church, when I intercede for my church, what is the content of my prayer? What do I ask for? Is it bless, bless Susie, bless John, help them with that limp that they have? I mean, I'm, those are good things to pray for, but listen, if that's the depth of our prayers, we are missing a rich, rich, rich depth of prayer from Scripture where we take God's Word and we apply it to one another in our pleading for one another. And that's the whole reason we're talking about a culture of prayer today. Because that's what this passage is. This passage today in Colossians is a prayer of intercession. It's, it's difficult to tell exactly where he starts, although you can kind of get that. It's really hard to figure out where he ends. And that actually tells us something about the way Paul prayed. Paul's prayers were mingled with teaching and doctrine, not separate from them. But this text, it's a prayer. And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to look at this. It is a form of a prayer, which means church, agape, if you take this and you pray it for one another, can you imagine, can you fathom, do you believe what this church would be like if every day we were on our knees praying for one another to be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Do you believe that would transform this church? Do you believe that it would transform people's lives? Because it absolutely will. You can take this and memorize it, and if you don't know what to pray for someone, pray this. This is a deep and rich prayer. But it is more than a form of prayer. It's also an exhortation. When we read this together, it should exhort us to pray for one another. We should be able to see what's happening in this passage and say, I, I want to pray for my church like Paul is praying for Colossae. I want to remind you, he's never met these people. He didn't start this church. But he loved them. And he prayed this for them. Now imagine how we should pray for one another when we have met this church. When we can close our eyes and see one another's faces and we know each other's names. And we have an investment in one another's lives.
How much should we do that? How much should we intercede on behalf of one another? I'm going to do something that I was wrestling with doing for a moment, but pretty small church, pretty small community, I think I can get away with this. I'm going to keep preaching, but I want to ask a couple of people if you'd go and pray with Anna over here on my left and just ask her how you can pray for her. And we're going to keep going in the Word, but would a couple of you go and just intercede for her as we're continuing to preach this morning. Thank you, guys. What are some lessons and if you're not, if you're not praying, we'll, let's focus our attention back. But I thought that was important. What are lessons that we learn from this text? What are some lessons that we can learn from Paul's intercession for Colossae? So in your notes, if you're a a note taker, we're going to kind of walk through these verses together. And as we walk through these verses, we're going to look for exhortations and what we can learn about prayer for one another from how Paul prayed for Colossae, a church he's never met but he's heard of. So now how can we pray for one another when we have met one another? Number one, the first thing I want you to see in verse 9, in your notes, is that Paul prayed immediately and regularly for the church. He prayed immediately and regularly for the church. Look at verse 9. Here's Paul's message to them. From the day we heard. Now, pause. What is he talking about? What is he talking about what we have heard? It goes back to last week in verse 4 of Colossians 1. He said, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. So what has started prayer in Paul's life for for Colossae is he has heard about how much they trust in Christ and how much they love each other. And he has said, I'm going to pray for them. And so he says in verse 9, from the day that we heard about this faith that you have, from the day that we heard about the love that you have for one another. We have not ceased to pray for you. Oh, Agape, if we could say that about one another. From the day I heard about you and your name and your life and the faith you have in Jesus, from the day that I heard about how you love one another, from the day I heard about your need and your struggle and what you deal with, I started praying for you that day. How many times do we tell one another, I'll pray for you, and then we have really good intentions, but we don't do that. But he says, not only from that day did I pray for you immediately, but I've not ceased to pray for you. This is regular intercession. Don't we sometimes hear a need and we pray for it a couple of times and then we stop? Either because the need was met, and so now we just don't pray for that person anymore, or because after two or three times of praying, 
the need hasn't been met, and we just kind of withdraw. What Paul is saying, a house of prayer, a culture of prayer, is a church that we pray for one another immediately, and we keep on praying for one another. I have a list of every family in this church by name. If you want it, I will give it to you. And you can put it up in your house and on your refrigerator. And you can pray for people by name. But we are to pray for one another immediately and regularly. And yes, is that hard? It is. And some of it is discipline on our part. Some of it is asking for the Holy Spirit to give us strength and help to do it to bring people to our minds and to us discipline ourselves that the moment someone comes to our mind, we stop and pray. Immediately we do that. What else do we learn from this? From the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you. The second thing in your notes, we learn that we pray for the strong, not just the weak. We pray for the strong, not just the weak. I threw this in because I want to go back to what I said a moment ago. Why is Paul praying for them? Because he heard they're strong in faith and they're strong in love for one another. We sometimes pray for the weak among us and not the strong among us. And I want to exhort one another, I want to exhort you that all of us need prayer. If you look at someone in this church and you say, I know they're struggling, I know they're weak, I know they have issues, I'm going to pray for them. But we should also look at the people that we hear about their faith. We know they're strong in love in the church. And we say, God, keep doing what you're doing in their life. Don't let them turn back. That's what Paul did. He said, since the moment I heard you're strong in faith and of love, I've kept praying. It's been my regular habit to pray for you. We know that the church in Colossae was dealing with a heresy. We know they were dealing with some something in the church that was threatening good doctrine. But he doesn't say, I've been praying for you because I've heard of your troubles. He says, I've been praying for you because I've heard of your faith and of your love. So we pray for the strong, not just the weak. We pray for both. And then the third thing I want you to notice in verse 9. Paul prioritized Spiritual needs. Paul prioritized spiritual needs. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. Let me back up. Asking. So here, he's going to tell the church in Colossae, I've been praying for you immediately and regularly since the first day I heard about you, and here's what I've been praying. Here's what I've been asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Church, memorize that. Oh, pray for one another. We're going to see in the rest of this text and this sermon the benefits of this. The transformation that happens. Pray for one another regularly to be filled with the knowledge of the will of God in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Josh and I had a a conversation at the beginning of this year. And he told me, he said, I'm going to do something a little bit different in the small group that he leads. And I don't remember if it was January or February or, or which, but he said, you know, a lot of times when we pray for one another in those groups, we open it up for prayer. And he said, and it's good. But he said, a lot of times, like it's 
pray for this health issue or pray for my friend who's going through a health issue or pray for this job loss or pray for this this practical needs. And, And listen, again, church, we need to pray for those things. We should. But the conversation Josh and I had is, what about the spiritual needs? I want you to think about how often when someone asks, how can I pray for you? How often our mind goes to our jobs, our health, something that's happening in our lives that's very practical. And How many times do we look at someone and say, I need you to pray that I will love God more. I need you to pray that I will love the saints like Christ loves the saints. I need you to pray that I will have a love for His Word. I need you to pray that I will abide with Jesus. I need you to pray that this sin that I've been wrestling with doesn't tempt me the way it has been. Church, we pray for practical needs, but we should prioritize spiritual needs. Because if we get the job we're praying for, we get the raise we're praying for, the friendship gets restored, and we get returned to health, and that's the outcome of our life, we're going to miss it. Because what's going to determine eternity and reward is our spiritual health. And I will also tell you that most, I think I will use that word, most practical issues have spiritual roots. Remember in James and James 4? James is writing to the church and one of the problems the church is having is division. They're fighting, they're quarreling, they come together to eat. They're not, they're probably like Paul said to the Corinthians, they're not loving each other well, they're not in community. And, and it's interesting because James doesn't say to them, pray for unity. Pray for peace. Although, in chapter 4, that might be what, I mean, it's a very good thing to pray for, but what James says is, why are you quarreling and fighting? Isn't it because there are worldly passions at war in you? Isn't your division and your fighting a product of the fact that you desire and you covet and you lust and you don't have and you're not praying and you're not asking? See, it was a practical problem with a spiritual root. We might go straight to the practical. Pray that we don't fight as much. Pray that we're not as divided in our marriage, in our home, in our church. Okay, but what's the spiritual root of that? Paul prioritizes spiritual needs. What is his prayer? Father, let them be filled with the knowledge of God's will. With the understanding and the wisdom to apply it to their day-to-day, moment-by-moment circumstances. It's in your notes. He prays that they will be filled with the knowledge of God's will, with understanding and wisdom to apply that knowledge to their day-to-day, moment-by-moment circumstances. We've kind of trained ourselves a little bit that when we hear the will of God, what our minds go to immediately is that secret divine will of what God wants us, the direction He wants us to go. What is the will of God for me and who I marry? What is the will of God in me and where I work and where we live? What is the will of God for me in ministry? That is definitely part of the will of God, but that is not what Paul is talking about here. 
the will of God beyond that divine hidden will for our lives, the will of God is throughout this book. Sometimes he even says, this is the will of God for you. Every command, every instruction in this Word is God's will for your life. And what Paul is saying here is not, may they be filled with a list of rules and laws and do's and don'ts. Because two things. One, you'd never be able to memorize all of them. And number two, that's not how Christianity works. Life happens way too fast. In a moment where someone attacks you out of the blue, you don't have time to scroll through a list of all God's written rules and say, I, I think number 972 is that I should not respond this way to this person. And rule number 1,448 is I should respond this way. Like, in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, where is the law of God written on our hearts? That's the knowledge of the will of God that He provides to you. His character, His law written on your heart so that the wellspring of what you say and do is being transformed by the knowledge of that will. That's what Paul's praying for. And he adds to it so that we understand that that knowledge is going to mean understanding. You're going to get deep insight into God's Word. Pray for that when you read it. When you abide with Christ, you pray. When you pray to Him, when you get in a small group, pray that the knowledge of God would be filled in your heart and you would have understanding that your mind would connect dots. Like, oh yeah, I understand why that's being said. I remember this is also said here. God, I remember how you worked in my life that way. And then wisdom. We, we, when we studied Proverbs, what we said about wisdom is its divine ability to know in a given moment how to apply the Word of God and the Spirit of God to the situation you're in. Sometimes the situation that you face may have five correct answers. If you're just looking in the Bible for a law, you might have five different directions that you could go that would all be within God's will of command. So how would you know which one to take? The wisdom of God. I, I could preach on this for hours, I won't. But we could do it for hours and hours and hours and we wouldn't come to the end of this one verse. Church, pray that your life would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Pray for one another. The depth of that is beyond what we can imagine. And Paul gives us just a little bit of it. Because what he's about to tell us in verse 10 in your notes is that right knowledge leads to right living. Right knowledge leads to right living. Religion, just so we have this straight, religion focuses on right living. The Gospel focuses on right knowledge. Knowing the will of God in spiritual understanding and wisdom. In spiritual wisdom and understanding. Knowing those things. Because when you know that and God is in you, 
right living will follow. Religion tries to change everybody's behavior without being worried about their heart. The Gospel is all about the heart. Are there do's and don'ts in the Bible? Absolutely. But those temptations and that sin has a spiritual root. The answer to be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Right knowledge leads to right living. I want you to notice as we move into verse 10, the filling that is happening is not something you do for you. It's something God does for you. You are being filled by God. You are being filled by Him as you abide with Christ. You are being filled with Him as you abide with Him. Look real quick. If you have a Bible, look at Colossians 2.3. We'll get there eventually in this, in this series. But talking about Christ in verse 3 of chapter 2, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Church, we talk about it all the time. It's another value of agape. Abide with Jesus. What happens as you abide with Jesus? He fills you with knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Seek Christ in prayer. Seek Christ in worship. Seek Christ in His Word, and He will fill you. And then what happens to you? Look at verse 10. Paul's still praying. Let them be filled with the knowledge of your will and spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Fully there does not mean perfection. We will not get perfection in this life. It does mean as much as possible. The fact that Paul says to Christians, the more that you have the will, the knowledge of the will of God, the more you will fully please Him means even as believers, we can displease God by what we do. That doesn't remove our salvation. It doesn't mean it changes our stance in Christ at all. If we are in Christ, remember how we started with the Gospel? We've already been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints. We've already been transferred. There's no moving us back and forth. But we can displease God. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. What Paul is praying is let them be filled with the knowledge of the will of God and spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they learn more and more how to walk in a manner fully pleasing to Christ. And then he adds there, worthy of the Lord. Again, that doesn't mean becoming worthy of Christ. That doesn't mean that you're doing something to earn the favor of Christ. Remember, the gospel we started with, it's already happened for you. You are qualified. You have been transferred. What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? In simplicity, Borrowing something from another teacher, it means to walk in a way that makes the worth of Jesus visible. Speak, church, not by a list of rules, but what makes the worth of Christ visible in your life. So many times we, we approach Christianity by, oh, what can I do or not do? No. How will people best see the worth of Christ in you? You're only going to know that when you are filled with the knowledge of God's will. We focus sometimes in this church on one another. I wish they'd stop acting that way. 
I wish they'd stop doing that. I wish my spouse would love me better or wish they'd stop sinning in that way or I wish I wish this person that I go to church with wouldn't have that attitude or we, we, we look at it, we see things that need to be fixed in one another. Right? And sometimes we focus on those things. We even separate from one another for those things. What's the solution though? What's the answer? To be filled with the knowledge of his will. If our spouses are filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So we can pray that. See why we should intercede for one another. You mad at somebody in this church? Intercede for them. You're bitter and angry towards someone? Intercede for them. You don't love someone as much as you need to? Intercede for them. Because that's what's going to change things. Not because if they could just figure out what I figured out about them. No. Intercede for them. So they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Now I want you to look at four things. I don't have these. I got lines so you can just write these down in your notes. But I want you to look at four attributes of a life. And I want you to know He's still praying. I don't know exactly where he stops, maybe around verse 12, but he's still praying. Let them be filled with the knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom and understanding so they'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And then look at four things that will happen. If, 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 this, if we're doing this, if we're praying this, if we're being filled with the knowledge of God's will and we are walking fully pleasing to him, look at what's going to happen. Four things. Number one, they will bear fruit in every good work. They will bear fruit in every good work. Remember remember what we've talked about before. We are the branches. Jesus is the vine. Branches don't bear fruit. The vine bears fruit. And the vine bears the fruit through the branch. When it says here, bearing fruit in every good work, it's what God is doing in you and through you. When you are walking fully pleasing to Christ because of the knowledge of the will of God that is in you, in spiritual wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of God is working in you to remind you of the law written on your heart. God is bearing good fruit through you. Church, listen, agape, do you want to bear fruit as a church? Start with praying for one another to be filled with the knowledge of His will. Because that's where it starts. What else happens? Look, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Another attribute of walking fully pleasing to Him. So we're going to keep increasing in the knowledge of God. We're going to keep increasing in knowing God. He's going to keep putting that law on our hearts. And also what happens when we bear good fruit? We learn God more. We experience Him. We see how He works in our lives. Some of you, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, you know how He speaks to you. You know how He works in you. You learn that. You increase in your knowledge of God because He's bearing good fruit through you. Look at, look at what else. Number three, this life that is pleasing to the Lord, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. A life that is filled with the knowledge of God's will is a life 
that will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, and one of the attributes will be, you will be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. That word might means power. Basically, it's saying you will be strengthened with all you will be strengthened with all power according to His power. It's a lot of power. He will strengthen you when you're weak. He will lift you up when you feel like you're going to give up. When you just want to lay down, He will strengthen you. He will keep you going. When you when temptation's knocking at the door and you're like, can I resist it again? He will give you the ability. He will strengthen you to love one another. He will strengthen you to worship. I don't, I don't feel like going to the small group. I don't feel like going to worship. He will strengthen you if you look to Him. And look at those two things. He will strengthen you for what? Endurance and patience with joy. Endurance means bearing up under difficult circumstances. He will strengthen you to keep going even when it's difficult. And patience with joy is long-suffering. And it's usually applied to long-suffering toward people. Which means He will strengthen you with His power to be long-suffering toward people that you want to give up on. And then look at the fourth thing. This fourth attribute of a life that is walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Giving thanks to the Father. Now, I do want to make a note that some translations and some theologians believe this actually should read with joy giving thanks. The ESV takes with joy and puts it with patience. There's some grammatical reason to believe that with joy goes in giving thanks, but I believe either one would apply rightly. Thankfulness to the Father. Giving thankfulness to God for all that He has done. A thankful life. I'm going to... Kevin just walked out, so this will be a good time for me to do this. I'm just, I'm going to make another bold step and just say, I don't know how many of you read this this week, but like Kevin and Caitlin's house almost, almost burned down. There was a fire in their kitchen. Their kitchen was destroyed. In order to keep their house from burning down, Kevin had to take this pot of grease and get it out of the house. And as he was doing it, he severely burned his hand. He's been at the burn clinic this week dealing with that. When he comes back in, don't everyone stare at him. Just kind of just act like we're not talking. I texted him this week. I said, man, I, I read about what happened. I wish I, my phone is tied up. But he said something to me like, God is so good. He said he has been so good to us. It could have been so much worse. My hand should have been so much worse. Caitlin said in her text to me, God is so good, I wanted to remodel the kitchen anyway. I've been around people that have walked with the Lord for decades and something comes up and their mind goes to, woe is me. Where is God? This family hasn't walked with Him for a long time, but their breath is, He is good. That's thankfulness that is coming by knowledge of the will of God. I'm going to go back to where we started. 
you are in Christ, He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness, transferred you to the kingdom of His beloved Son. This is written by a man who hated Christianity, who was on a road to go to a city to prepare to be able to arrest more Christians and oversee their imprisonment and their execution. And on that road, he saw the glory of Christ and he was stricken blind. And he came to believe upon Jesus and after believing upon Him, his eyes were opened. Not just physically, but to a brand new life. And he writes to Colossae and says, He has delivered you the same as He has delivered me from the domain of darkness where I thought I was walking down the right path and I thought I was doing what was right and good. And He blinded me to those things and He transferred me to the kingdom of His beloved Son and He opened my eyes to the light. If that is you and you belong to this church, I beg you to intercede for one another. Make it our culture. Pray for this church and the people in it, sometimes by name, to be filled with the knowledge of the will of God so that they may walk worthy of the Lord, bearing good fruit in every work they do, being strengthened with His power, Increasing in their knowledge of God and giving thanks to Him. Agape, if that's our culture and we give ourselves to that, it is going to be transformative. And we do it because Christ has qualified us and joined us together. And if you are in this place today and you don't know Jesus in that way, He has placed you here that your soul might be awakened to this truth. He will qualify you. He will rescue you. He will transfer you. Cry out to Jesus to be saved. And He will save you. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved.